Well, if you'd open your Bibles up to uh, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be, be a little different this morning. I'm going to be using a PowerPoint, which is unusual for me, and uh, hopefully that'll go well. And I'm also going to be, is the PowerPoint coming up? You're working on it? There we go. I'm also going to be doing a, a topical sermon, which is unusual for me. So we'll be, today, be skipping around to different passages, so be ready you know, like a sword drill, have your Bibles ready to flip over to those different passages. If you are uh, new this morning, you came on a good Sunday because this is our fall kickoff Sunday. And generally at our fall kickoff Sunday, we, we try to gather back and kind of refocus on a vision, on what we're doing as a church and what we're to be about. I like to call it... Uh, Christ the Redeemer box top Sunday. That's what CTR, if you're new, actually means, Christ the Redeemer. Box top Sunday. And you see, I call it this because when I was a kid, I liked to do models. Sometimes race cars, sometimes uh, jet planes, sometimes you're a battleship. And I had a procedure for doing these models for success. And that was I'd get all the pieces and they used to come in little frames like that, and uh, ready, and get the instructions out, and get my glue ready, and my paints. And, uh, and then there was one very important thing, and that was the box top. I'd get the box top out in front of me, set it out there, sometimes I would tape it to the wall, because that gave me what I was going after. That gave me the big picture, what I was trying to achieve. When I was all done with the model, I could hold it up next to the box top to see how I did. That is what we're doing today at Christ the Redeemer. We're going to get the box top view. We're going to look at our big vision, what we're about, kind of hold it up so that we can all get on the same page and hopefully be excited about it, see all the, how all the pieces fit in. Now to do this, we need to start where we should start, and that's with Jesus. And so we're looking, at least initially, at Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 36, uh, 35 actually to 38. Let me just read the first couple verses here. This is what it says. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What we see here, first of all, is the heart of God. Jesus, as he moves through these villages, is proclaiming the gospel and healing the sick and afflicted. And as he's doing that, he is deeply moved. It says that as he looks at the crowds, it says he had compassion. That word is actually a word that, that talks literally means he feels it in the viscera, in his guts, in his entrails. It's a deep down pain that he feels. It hurts him. It makes him sick. The, the word actually has a, a tinge of anger to it, like that painful frustration. He sees that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, it says. 
And that's not a physical statement. He's not looking out, seeing a bunch of disheveled, dirty people. It's a spiritual statement. He sees right into them, and he's pained. He's filled with this frustrated compassion. Their sin and, and the sins of the world is, is causing pain and dysfunction in their lives, so that they're, and they're helpless to do anything about it, and they're on this road to destruction. He says, they're sheep without a shepherd. That's actually a very scary phrase. It's not to us, because we're not shepherds. We don't think much about that. But to somebody who understands, in their culture, that's a scary phrase. It pictures a starving, emaciated animal with no nourishment, just left out in the wild, defenseless, ready to be fodder for any prey that comes helpless animals, prone to just wander off a cliff. This is how Jesus sees these crowds, this lost world that he's looking at, harassed and helpless, prey to the ravishes of their own sin and the attacks of the evil one, living lives heading for destruction. And he's pained to the core. And this is what motivates his mission. Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem here. He's on the way with his disciples. He's on the way where he's going to die. And this is what motivates him forward. His compassion for the lost before him drives him every moment. And it should be the same for us. How do we see the world the world that we've been graciously saved out of? Do we look with eyes of, of compassion and hearts that hurt? Or are we kind of hardened and disdainful? You know, look out at the stupid people wasting their lives, rejecting God. Look at all the, the debauched ways. I need to keep my kids away from them. They're ruining our schools and messing up our country easy to be that way but do we have hearts like Jesus like our God who looks sees their spiritual condition and is pained it should pain us as we drive through Spokane as we interact with some of our neighbors as we watch the news it should get to our hearts in a way that affect affects our lives and if it doesn't we'll, we'll do nothing which brings me to the second thing that we see modeled here by Jesus, and that is the call of God. Look at verse 37 with me. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. You see, when Jesus looks out at the crowds of the lost and harassed, he sees a harvest, a harvest of, uh, that, that's ripe, harvest of souls. He doesn't see a bunch, you know, of, of kind of morons to steer clear of and say to his disciples, hey, let's go around these people and around this town. He doesn't see a bunch of people that are too far gone to bother with. You know, they'll never hear the gospel. Look, look can you believe how, No. He sees ripe souls ready for harvest. And he sees many 
says the fields are plentiful. The harvest fields. Now I know that when I kind of examine my own heart and my cynicism, I, I don't think this way. I look out and I think, well, maybe there's a few out there. Most of them are already way too hard or they're rotten. I don't see the ripe fields because my faith is way too small and selfish. Jesus sees plentiful, ripe fields of lost souls. The fields aren't the problem. What's the problem in the text? What's the problem in verse 37? Laborers. He prays for laborers. Let's read it again, verse 37. Then he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He wants them to pray. Jesus looks for, he he wants laborers, he, he wants people, his people, his followers to go out and harvest, to go out and proclaim the gospel, to bring people to salvation, to bring the lost sheep to the good shepherd. And if you know this book, you know in the next section, that's it. It's exactly what he does. He sends out his disciples. He sends out not just 12. We know from Luke that he sends out 72 in pairs to announce the kingdom, to call people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what is important for us to note this morning is that by the end of this book, this call comes down to us. The call to go out as laborers comes down to every Christian. Flip to the end of the book, to Matthew 28. Probably familiar with this passage. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Jesus, if you look here in Matthew 28, verse 18, that section there, Jesus has just risen from the dead. The disciples are meeting the risen Jesus for the first time. The last time they saw him, he had died a horrible death on a cross. And they were discouraged and kind of scattered. But now he suddenly appears to them alive, having conquered death, full of power and authority, the risen king. And they they kind of fall down in a mixture of awe and fear and doubt. Can this be happening? You can imagine the moment. And what does Jesus say? What does he want from them, their, their risen king and lord what are his parting words well they're pretty clear jesus says to them and jesus came and said to them all authority in heaven all authority has been given in heaven on earth has been given to me he has it all go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit and teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you go out and make disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying, share the gospel so that people may come to believe and submit their lives to their king and savior as you have. It's the job of all his disciples is to make disciples. The harvest fields are are ripe. And you think about it. Those disciples go out and they make disciples. And their job is to what? make disciples. And their job is to what? Make disciples all the way down to us. That's why we're sitting here. And now the job is on us. Because the fields are still plentiful. 
So at CTR, we must be about making disciples. Gospel harvesting, it's the heart and call of God. And it must be the heart and call of this church. We are to be gospel laborers, every single one of us. We must look out at our world with the compassion of our Savior and be compelled forward with the gospel. Now, to be about this as a church, to keep being about this, to kind of stay on task, there are, there are three core values that we have here at CTR that we think come right out of the scriptures that undergird everything we do. And the first one, very simple, is that we are gospel-centered or strive to be gospel-centered. This is one of those ones that people think, well, that's, that's obvious, and in a way, it is, but in a way, it's not. Every time I go to pastors' conferences and meet pastors, uh, one of them eventually says to me as we're chatting, they go, you know, hey, so what's, what's your church's thing? What are, you, what are you guys about? What do you do there? And I know what they're asking, right? And they're asking, you know, are you guys purpose-driven or seeker-friendly or are you reformed or are you messianic? Are you progressive? Are you charismatic? They're, they're trying to peg label, like, what are you amongst the smorgasbord of American Christianity? And I usually say, and I'm not trying to be smug, but I say, well, we're a gospel church. We strive to be a gospel church, to be about the gospel. And they usually respond, well, yeah, yeah, I know, but, right? Because they assume on the gospel. It's very easy to assume on the gospel but that's the problem as soon as we assume on it we begin to drift from it we drift to all kinds of other sidetracks right we can get about culture war issues and communication techniques and you know our, our gospel can be taken over by kind of gospels of therapeutic healing and gospels of social action and regentrification and gospels of good news and calvinistic theology we can never assume on it. We must never stray. We must work at being gospel-centered. Paul, Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. This is how we get saved. This is how you got saved. You heard the gospel. God acted upon you and saved you as you were convicted of your sin and you repented we're cleansed and transformed. And this is what we are all called to grow in. We don't move beyond it. We grow up in it. The gospel is the means not only of our salvation, but our sanctification. So often people think the gospel is kind of the thing that gets you in the door, right? It's the ticket in, it's Christianity 101, and then you move on to, you know, the advanced classes. No. No, we grow in the gospel. Dane Ortland has this great illustration where he talks about, you know, when you first come to the gospel, it's like you've reached the ocean and you just stick your foot in. You have to rest of your life to explore the depth of that ocean in the gospel. And you know, I want to define, I want to, as I'm speaking about it here, I can assume that everybody knows what I mean by the gospel. And knows what, so I'm going to go ahead and say, this is what, how I think the scriptures define the gospel. The gospel is the good news from God 
that although we, all mankind, all humankind, have been separated from our loving creator God because of our rebellion and our sin and are thus destined for death and just judgment, that although that's true, our God in his great mercy sent his son Jesus to take the death and judgment we deserve. He took that at the cross upon him. And then he rose and conquered sin and death and he now reigns in heaven as king offering forgiveness and life to all who rely on him as their savior and submit to him as their king. This is the message of the whole Bible from end to end. This is the message of Jesus and his disciples. This is the message of the apostle Paul. We want to always be centered on it. It's what defines our existence as Christians and as a church. If you would flip over to Colossians with me, I just want to show you something about the gospel here. Flip over to Colossians chapter 1. I know it might take you a second. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 3 here. And we're going to read a little bit. And I'm going to ask you a question. This is the question. Where is the gospel growing and bearing fruit? Where is the gospel growing and bearing fruit? Now let's read. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have, rendered, have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So where is the gospel bearing fruit? Yeah, the first place we see is in the whole world. As the gospel goes out, as the message is proclaimed, hearts are changed, people are saved. By the way, this is, this is what church growth is about. It's not about filling up pews, right? It's about the gospel. It's about gospel growth. It's about the gospel going out and changing lives and people coming into the family of God, the true church, the body of Christ. That's the growth that we want to be about. Christ the Redeemer. But where else is it bearing fruit? What does it say in the text? Among you. Among the believers. You see... This defines, for us, personal growth. The gospel bearing fruit in our lives. As we're learning to live lives worthy of the gospel, growing in our grace and forgiveness, growing in, in our resurrection hope, growing in, 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 in our peaceable relationships. This is gospel growth. It's bearing fruit in our lives. We must always stay centered on the gospel for the world's sake and for our own. Now the second core value of this church comes directly out of this first one, and that is we are word-driven. The gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation, is explained, fleshed out, and applied in this book right here. I'm talking about the Bible. So in a very real sense, this is the means that God does his work in the world and in us. 
the Word of God. How does God do His gospel work in and through us in this world? The Word. Think about it. When Jesus came, who, by the way, was the Word incarnate, how did He make things happen? How did He do things? He spoke. He just spoke. He said to the demons, be silent. And they were silent, whether they wanted to be or not. He said to the storm, be still. He commanded it by his word. He commanded nature, be still. He said to the fever in in Peter's mother, stop. He had control of those molecules. He said to the man with the withered arm, stretch out your hand. And he did. He said to the crippled man who couldn't move, get up. And he did. He said to the... Jairus' dead daughter, Talitha Kumi, little girl, arise. She got up from death. And someday when he comes back, John tells us that he's going to call us all by a word to resurrection. Jesus' word is the command of God. It is powerful. And he's still speaking today, right here in the Bible. And it's also powerful for his work in this world and for his work in us. And you may be thinking, well, you know, what about the, the spirit? Doesn't God work through his spirit? Isn't that really the way God works? The answer is yes. Of course, he works powerfully through his spirit. But how? What does he do with his spirit? His spirit illuminates the word. It helps us see it. Opens our eyes to it. Right? Softens our hearts. The sword that the Spirit uses to cut to our very hearts is what? The sword of the Spirit. It's the Word. The seed that God puts out, that He plants. What is the seed in the parable of the sower? It's the Word that the Spirit uses to mature and grow God's people. The Word of God and the Spirit of God cannot be separated, my friends. Sometimes people are like, well, there's a church over here. They're kind of a word church. This church is more of a spirit church. No. The word and the spirit work together in the scriptures. This is why Jesus literally says in John 6, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And it's big S spirit. Holy Spirit spirit there. That's why the writer of the Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 to the little church in Hebrew, which was written hundreds and hundreds of years before them, and says, as the Spirit says today, when he quotes that text, that ancient text, that word is speaking today, the Spirit is speaking today. The Word of God is alive and active. At CTR, we believe if we want to be a Spirit-filled people where God is working powerfully in our lives by His Spirit, then we must be a Word-filled church. All our ministries, high school ministry, women's ministry, growth groups, men's ministries, must be shaped by the word of God. This belief is, what, uh, is, is why we practice expositional preaching here. If you've been along here, you know that we work our way through a book of the Bible. We work our way text through text, text after text. And basically what I'm doing up here is I'm having you look at the text, explaining the text, having us think about the text, because the power is in the word of God. It's not in the preacher's personality. It's not in his eloquent words. It's in the word of God. I want you to be interacting with the word. 
That's why we have, you'll sometimes see me up here, you'll sometimes see Andrew up here, you'll sometimes see Jay up here, you'll sometimes see Trevor up here. Whoever you may see up here, that's not the important thing. The question is whether opening the word. The word of God does the work of God in the world and in our lives. This is also why we practice kind of uh, word-infused discipleships. As we relate and disciple each other here, it must be around the word. My relationship with you or your relationship with another person here, as cuddly and as nice as it may be, can do nothing to change their heart and their soul without the word. We believe that can do a lot to encourage them, make them feel good, lots of things. There's lots of good things about relationships that God uses. But to change them spiritually, to grow them, it must be the word. It's only as we help each other through exhortation and example and teaching of the word that God's sanctifying work is happening in our lives. This is why 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm just going to read it for you, says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, that's relational, correction, that's relational, for training, that's relational, training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. My friends, technology is great. I'm using it right now with the PowerPoint, but it doesn't change lives or souls. Strategies and facilities are great, but can't change a life for salvation. Relational dynamics are very powerful and can grow a crowd, but cannot change a single heart. It's the Word of God and His gospel that does that. CTR will strive to have the word inform and drive all our ministries. And that brings me to our final core value, and that is community. We're a gospel-centered, word-driven community. It's funny, the American church likes to really think of church in, in temple and cathedral imagery. When it, when it comes, you know, to how we think. That's how we, we like to think of it. it. The church is the special building where God resides in some special way and maybe we should whisper when we come in. You know, often it's got stained glass windows and a decor that gives you a sense of the numinous. Do you feel it? But... Um, and I think that when we come on Sunday mornings, we, we want to have this experience of God where we're lifted up and convicted. It's kind of this individualized moment. And, and, and it can kind of foster, that view of it can foster that, support this individualized experience of God. But the dominant imagery in the New Testament for the church is actually family imagery. The church is the family of God. It's the household of God, right? Or it's the body of Christ, which we're adopted into. Everybody comes into the body. Everybody's got a part to do. It's this family imagery. We're saved into a body. We're adopted into a family. That is what church is. And that's why we 
hold on to the word community. You'll see it on our front of our bulletin in our vision statement. Let's try to capture this. It, it, it implies a, a relational commitment and a responsibility to each other. We don't just come on Sunday and take off. It implies when you think of the elders here that it's not a business board, but they're supposed to be like fathers to a family. It's what drives our commitment to growth groups and youth groups and small group Bible studies. Because families don't just meet on Sunday for an hour. When we push membership here, we're pushing familyship. Come and be loved and encouraged and held accountable as a family to grow in the gospel. And I would say this gospel community has two main characteristics. It should, at least. One should be grace. As people that have been saved by grace, we must be a community of grace, striving to serve each other in humility and, and love, not legalism and judgment, striving in repentance and forgiveness and gentleness with each other. Grace. We saw it in the book of James this summer. When he told him wisdom from above, that it, first it was pure, and that it was peaceable, and that it was reasonable, and that it was loving, all those relational graces. But more than that, the community here should be a community of partnership. I want you to turn over with me to uh, Philippians. Let's see if I. I know we're doing a lot of flipping this morning, but if you're in Colossians, you just have to flip back a little bit. Philippians chapter 1. And let me read verses 3 to 8. This is what it says. Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership. That's that word koinonia. It, it can mean fellowship. But it has the idea of partnership. Partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, plural, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers. Again, that's koinonia, partners with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and my defense and confirmation of the gospel. That slide is really hard to see, but I highlighted the partnership and the you-alls and the partakers together. See, what does that imply, partnership? It implies that we're doing something together. We're not just hanging out. Fellowship sounds like hanging out with coffee. Partnership sounds like you're doing something. 127 here, he says what they're doing. He says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or, an, or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, they had a family business, a family partnership to be gospel laborers for Jesus when we, we come together here to learn and to pray and to be encouraged and be equipped so we can go out into the spheres of our relationships in this world and stand firm and proclaim the gospel. We're supporting each other in that manner of life. That's the amazing thing, that God's powerful 
gospel, which is expressed in his word that's alive and active, he wants to take to the world through us, his church family. That means there should be no passive pew sitters in this church. Everybody should be on gospel task altogether. This being the recharge station for us to go out. Really, if you want to be a person who wants to come and just sit in a pew on Sunday and then leave and that's all you want, then you might want to leave because that's not what we're about here. We want to be gospel partners together. This is who we're to be as a church. This is, uh, is our box top. It's what we're holding up in front of all of us to be gospel-centered, word-driven, community on mission. That's who we are at Christ the Redeemer. And as we head downstairs after this, we're going to be talking about all the little details of how we can be involved and do that. But one thing I want to say is, This is something we can't do in our own strength. It takes dependence and reliance on God. It's interesting to me that Jesus in Matthew 9, 35, Matthew 9, that section where he calls them to be laborers, says, therefore, verse 38, this is the end of it, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the field. We need to be a church at prayer, so let's pray. Father, we thank you for your powerful, saving gospel that's gotten a hold of us. It's transformed our lives. We thank you for your powerful word that opens eyes and softens hearts and cuts to the core. We thank you for your body, your family that is the place where we may be nourished and grow in your gospel. And may we, at Christ the Redeemer, be on mission together. May we be your gospel laborers, looking out with compassion on the fields that are ripe for harvest. May we be disciple makers. Amen.